Well, tonight we come to part four of our evening series on the millennium titled, He Must Reign. Keyword must. I guess the other keyword is reign. It's about the biblical understanding of, of premillennialism, and this is a multi-part series that will draw an ever-increasing focus on the last days, just as uh, in the Bible, what starts kind of fuzzy, for lack of a better word, uh, becomes clear and clear and clear until it comes into crystal focus at the end of the book of Revelation. What do I mean by that? In, in the garden, there's this seed of a woman that's going to crush the head of a, of a serpent. It's going to undo what, what took place in the, in the fall, God's original plan his reign, starting in the garden, going all, all over the earth, has been turned upside down. And so God makes this, this, this promise, which you, you wouldn't say it's a veiled promise, but it's not as much detail as you want. You say, well, what seed, what woman, how's all of this going to happen? And then, then the Old Testament just marches forward from, from there, and things become clearer and clearer as you, you move along. And that's intentional because the Bible is progressive in Revelation, particularly how that points to the coming earthly kingdom of our, of our Lord. In the last days is, is, the, is, a, is a term that's, that, that's used, and it's not a particular day. I think we know that because we say days plural. But it's really this period of time that we're living in right now. So we have Revelation behind us, and I don't mean Revelation as a book. Revelation from God that's already taken place. We've got revelation that, that we've been given, with, which has future uh, prophetic things that are taking place. And we're right here in the middle, in between the, the comings of, of Jesus. Christ has come as he promised in the Old Testament. He's accomplished his sacrificial work. He's risen and ascended, and, and he is building his church. He's gathering his elect. And predominantly, he is doing that during a period where God is graciously uh, calling Gentiles to salvation. Right now, the majority of the church is made up of, of Gentiles, um, and including these Gentiles in, in the people of God. Um, and he's chastening, he's chastising the nation of Israel during this period of time for her unbelief and rejection of the Messiah. But this inclusion of the Gentiles and the temporary rejection by Israel will in no way prohibit the future promised kingdom from, from coming to the earth. It's still promised when these last days are completed. At the end of, of these days, uh, the Jewish nation will repent. There will be a second coming of Christ. Their repentance is actually going to bring that about at the end of the tribulation and that will inaugurate this intermediate earthly kingdom of Jesus, where he will reign in Jerusalem, just as we heard last week, and this reign will end up going all over the earth. And, and this kingdom is necessary, this coming earthly kingdom is necessary to fulfill what's been promised and prophesied in the Old Testament. And it's also temporary. It's going to last for, for a thousand years. It's, it's necessary because the last Adam, Christ, must do what the first Adam failed at, the creation mandate that was given. You're my image bearer, and I want you to fill the earth, take dominion over the earth, fill the earth with my glory. And he must reign over creation and, and, and do that very thing. But even then, the, the earthly kingdom, this earthly intermediate kingdom, this thousand-year kingdom, this millennial kingdom of Christ is not the final promise. That kingdom will ultimately give way to the new heavens and the new earth, also called the eternal state. And that's what we're laying out over, over these many weeks. And we're doing this because the end matters. Uh, it's, it's something that, that, that's not just for people that are interested in prophetic charts. In fact, the New Testament hope, the blessed hope, the coming of our Lord, the, the New Testament hope is centered on this, this future coming and then future kingdom. Um, marriage supper of the Lamb is happening before the, before the kingdom. And the church's task is also governed by, 
by this, by this coming kingdom. So we want to be clear about the end, and we want you to know why it matters, and we want to, want to give you a thoroughly biblical articulation of it and, and know what the Bible teaches and therefore what our church believes. I mentioned to you when I introduced it, it it's not possible to cover this all at once, and we're, we're not trying to. I mean, if you're feeling like you're missing pieces, that's because you are. It's just, again... Think about what I'm, what I'm saying here. Just as, as the Bible begins and it doesn't give you all of the details, those details build as we move along. And so Clay and then Tim before him were, were in, this, in this, this, this part of, of God's revelation where, where we have uh, a lot of data, but, but it's building. And I'm hope, hopefully it'll, it'll get really clear for you uh, tonight and then the next time we, we, we do that. And we're, we're going this way progressively, starting in Genesis, moving all the way through. Very, we're being very purposeful about that because it's, as it's unfolding progressively, that's how you see it. That's how the Bible reveals it to us. And we want your convictions to be built on Scripture, not just on, on traditions or, or our ideas. Uh, so I introduced the, the series to you. Tim showed you the earthly kingdom that was anticipated in, in Eden, and then Clay walked us through how it was announced by the prophets. Now, both of those guys had, wow, what a, what a task. Uh, Tim covering uh, up through the Davidic kingdom and Clay covering all the prophets on, 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 on Sunday night. So he camps in Isaiah, uh, which is representative of that. I'm going to take you through the New Testament and we'll end in Revelation 20 uh, before talking about contrary views and specific questions that people have. Well, what about this and what about that? And then we'll end with why does it matter for the church uh, today? There are two other primary views about the, the, the eschaton, about the end, the kingdom. And I won't go back over those in detail. If you want more info about it, you can go to the first message on millennialism and post-millennialism. We are what's called pre-millennial. And all of those have something to do with the, with the millennium. Two words in Latin, first one meaning thousand, and the second one meaning years. So hence the thousand-year reign of Christ. And, and if you listen, amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial, they, also, they all have prefixes in front of this, this thousand-year reign, indicating generally what they conclude, what each position concludes about the timing and the nature of the kingdom of our Lord. Amillennial, meaning no thousand-year kingdom, basically spiritualizes the Old Testament and the New Testament promises about the kingdom. It says the New Testament church has replaced Israel and all the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament are now being fulfilled in the church and God has no future for ethnic Israel other than, than those things, other than what's happening right now in, in the church. There's no kingdom in a literal sense coming to the, to the earth. And that position has many many problems, but particularly, I think it obscures God's promises and purposes for, for Israel, promises in the Old Testament. The other view is post-millennial, which is oftentimes called the optimistic view. It says there is a kingdom, but that kingdom is happening right now on the earth as the gospel spreads and that Jesus is coming post-kingdom after the spreading of that that. that gospelizing of the, of the world, if you will, and this current kingdom that's happening right now involves both Jew and Gentile, which, which make up the church, and God's plan for Israel is that more and more Jews will gradually be saved as the gospel is, is spread. There is no earthly reign of Christ for a thousand years. There's no specific future for ethnic Israel beyond that, and then general resurrection and general judgment that gives way to the eternal state. And while that view, I would say, is better than amillennialism, but I think it obscures both Israel and the church and overlooks the necessity of Christ's reign in the way that the Old Testament promises. And, and both of those, as we said, are made up of brothers. They just need their eschatological eyeglasses changed a little bit. Um, Postmillennialists are too nearsighted. They can't see things far off in detail. With just a little hermeneutical prescription change, they only need a few tweaks. They can see God's end more clearly. The abillennialist needs LASIK surgery, okay? There's no fixing allegory with eyeglasses. And the preterist needs a cornea transplant. I mean, 
That's a whole other thing we aren't even talking about. The biblical view that we're presenting is often called premillennialism. And it can be clearly seen, I think, as you approach Scripture as progressive revelation, meaning that God unfolds His plan a little at a time and gives revelation that way. The Old Testament was given first, comes to us first by Moses, and then the prophets. The New Testament then builds on the Old gives us further revelation. The New Testament reveals things that the Old Testament doesn't, for sure. There are mysteries that are revealed in the New Testament, meaning it's something that wasn't revealed in the Old, but it never contradicts the Old Testament, and it never alters the Old Testament, like some who would say the church replaces Israel. And all of the covenants and the promises are unconditional, irrevocable, unless the Old Testament specifically says that they're, they're temporary, like, like the Mosaic Covenant. And the New Testament, as you know, begins with the Gospels and Acts. And then it moves to the epistles, which were given to the apostles, and it ends with the final chapter of the Bible called the Book of Revelation, which we've already done an overview of. And that last revelation that we received is that, is that prophetic book, which aptly enough reveals how it's all going to end in the detail. It gets very clear uh, and at the end, which is why, again, we're going through the Bible in that order to help you see it clearly. And tonight we're going to focus on the New Testament. And let me remind you just, just quickly what, what we've seen so far. What are we building on in the New Testament? Well, what began in Genesis, Tim traced us through the kingdom of David, Solomon, the the unified kingdom, showing how the earthly reign of God was anticipated in Eden. In fact, that was one of the reasons, or the reason, for creation. That's why God made us image bearers and the task that he gave to us on the, on the earth. Mankind was made in God's image with the mandate to take dominion and expand God's reign over all the earth. And he was to expand the boundaries of the garden, and uh, which, which he not only failed to do, but in, in the fall, Adam attempted to establish his own reign became God's enemy. And then Tim showed us how God in his gracious mercy reconciled Adam and Eve to himself and promised a rescue operation through that seed that would come. The rest of the Old Testament is a description of how that plan is unfolding. If you can begin to see that biblical timeline, it will, it will help you. As the Old Testament gives more and more detail being revealed, showing how God is, is going to do that. He chose a man... Abraham made him a promise that from him would come a nation and kings, and that pointed to one specific king who would reign one day. That was a nation that turned into a nation and then a kingdom of David and Solomon, which, which ended Solomon's reign with Israel as a nation in the land, subdued with blessing and all of the world looking to, to Solomon, or most of the world, you could say. And that think, well, maybe it's here. Just like the days of Noah. You think, maybe it's here. God starts over with Noah. What follows is catastrophe again, which leads to Israel's failing and being exiled from the land. And then Clay traced the plan in exile through the rest of the Old Testament, showed how this future kingdom was announced by the prophets in very concrete and specific ways that must be fulfilled and so between the two of them, we saw the Old Testament teaches that God made unilateral, unconditional promises and covenant to Israel, about Israel. He promised a great nation, a land with defined boundaries, blessing to the world, salvation, the Messiah, and the glorious earthly kingdom in which the Messiah would rule in Jerusalem. And the prophets in particular announced a coming kingdom where Israel would be the center of the world. And the Messiah's throne would be in Jerusalem. And he would rule the entire world with wisdom and knowledge, would permeate all of all the earth, and righteousness and peace would, would be the norm. That's what was promised. And that's what was anticipated whenever, whenever Jesus arrived. I mean, one of the things that really helped make this, this thing clear for me was just was thinking about. What does Revelation say, and then, and then how does it unfold? And in, and in this case, 
What was anticipated whenever Jesus uh, uh, arrived? I think the question that you have to ask as you approach the New Testament was we heard what, what Moses said, we heard what the prophets were, were, were anticipating or announcing. So when Jesus came, did he change anything? I mean, if this earthly kingdom with a future perfect king reigning in Jerusalem with all of those specific promises about peace and the government will be on his shoulders and these types of things, if that's what Holy Scripture says in the Old Testament, and that was the clear understanding of even Jewish people whenever Jesus arrived. They were expecting an earthly kingdom. Then did the, did the coming of the Messiah give any new revelation that changed or altered that in some way? That's a legitimate question. I mean, post-millennialists argue that the Jewish people got their eschatology wrong. And in some ways, we, we would agree with that. But Kenneth Gentry, in his book about, about the kingdom, said this, Israel's misunderstanding of eschatology eventually destroyed her by leading her to reject the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Likewise, false eschatology or false eschatological speculation is destroying the church today by leading her to neglect her Christian calling this man, post-millennialist, bases that largely on New Testament revelation. So if something changed in the New Testament, then we would want to see that. We would also have a whole other set of problems that you'd have to deal with that we don't have time to go into, like how does God say one thing in the Old Testament that so definitively and then change that in the New Testament? How does he make such specific promises about land and, and thrones and, and people and boundaries and, and, and on the earth in the Old Testament and then, and then alter that in the New. Because the Old Testament is very explicit about these things. What I want to show you tonight is not only was that earthly kingdom anticipated by the Jewish people when Jesus came, but that's exactly what Jesus himself affirmed. It's exactly what he told his apostles to expect and what they actually did expect. In, in fact, the ascension is what they're expecting. And it's what they wrote about in the epistles. And that's exactly what Revelation gives explicit detail about. So I'm going to show you over the next two sermons that there is no future revelation that changed the plan. There was nothing in the sense of spiritualizing it or in the sense of saying the kingdom is now. It's an aspect of it now, but not the fulfillment, the full fulfillment of the kingdom. Or something that's completely different from what everyone thought. I'm going to show you in the New Testament, the writers did nothing but carry on the, the promises that God made about a, a literal earthly kingdom that Israel's party to and that Jesus has has come to reign in. It's a lot to cover. So here's where we're, we're going to start. Open, if you would, to, to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. I think you start in the beginning of the New Testament. What did the Jewish people expect about the kingdom and what did Jesus teach? Or did he alter anything about that, about that kingdom? Surely tweaked some things, but what did he tweak? You go a lot of places about the coming of Christ, Christmas story, but there's really nothing of, of any argument there. I think the first place that, that you would go is the earthly ministry of the king, which begins with John the Baptist, first prophetic witness. And again, it's our task to look at the Gospels and the Epistles, and see if there's any revelation that tells us that God's changed his plan or added to it or further clarified it or, or explained it in, in, in such a way. Again, we're building. So when we get the revelation, we'll, we'll talk about that again. But, but right now we're just looking at the Gospels and Acts and then we'll look at the Epistles. I mean, surely, if God was simply spiritualizing what he said in the Old Testament or if the Jews of Jesus' day had gotten the kingdom wrong, the future kingdom 
or that there was future revelation that was, that was, that was going to tell us that the church had replaced Israel's promises or that those promises are now fulfilled completely in the church, then Jesus would be the one to change that. Jesus would be the one to, to make that clear. We're going to look at the Gospels up to the Ascension and see if we can find such a, such a change. I don't mean in obscure passages where you play dot to dot. I mean explicit. Because if there's there was something that significant that would alter all of the Old Testament or bring such a significant change to what the kingdom looks like in progressive revelation, then there would be major revelation about that. And it should be in the New Testament because there's nothing else coming. We're, we're not Mormons. God was going to say, I'm not doing an earthly kingdom after all in, in the land and I'm not giving a kingdom to Israel I'm not going to reign over the earth like, like I told you in the, in the Old Testament. There's a mystery that I'm going to reveal to you now. Then, then surely that wouldn't just be allusions to that, but major specific revelation. And the prophetic literature that's coming would make that even plainer. Revelation, which is the capstone, would, would, would make all of that even, even more specific. It wouldn't be spiritualized and obscured like, like some interpret revelation. And what you're going to see is there is no such revelation. You can find passages that can be interpreted in illusional ways if you approach them, I think, from a preconceived conclusion. But you can't find a definitive passage in the New Testament that says God has altered his plan for an earthly kingdom being future. In fact, I think you'll see that the very last thing that Jesus and his disciples are talking about before he sends them out on their mission is about an earthly kingdom that, that Israel is, is part of, and, it, and it's still coming. You can't cover all of the Gospels, so here is my attempt to cover five places, which I think make this, make this plain. Again, it'll build, and there'll be more that will come even in Revelation. So five confirmations. I'll leave this up. Five confirmations. We're not going to cover all of this tonight. Five confirmations in the New Testament that show the future earthly kingdom is, is expected, of which Israel as a nation is, is part of. We'll look at the announcement of the king's arrival with John the Baptist and then Jesus, what they're preaching. Then we'll look at the specifics about what Jesus is preaching. What's the message of the king? What's Jesus running around Galilee saying? And that's in the Sermon on the Mount. And then we'll look at the prophetic explanation of the, of the kingdom. In the ministry of Jesus, there is, the, there is Matthew 24 and Mark 13, which is the condensed version, when the disciples specific, specifically ask, when will this be and what will be the signs of your coming? When you, again, fulfill these, these promises, we'll look at that, and then we'll look at the the commission of the, of the kingdom messengers, which would be the Great Commission and then Acts and the Ascension, my witnesses, where he, king now gives instructions to his vice regents who are now going to go throughout all the earth and make kingdom subjects. And uh, finally, we'll, 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 we'll look at the epistles. We'll look at the writings of the apostles. After the apostles have got the ball from Jesus and they've got the commission and they're told to go out and do this, this work, what were they looking toward? What, what does the epistles re re reveal? Because whether you're pre, post, or all, you're looking at the same data. And I'm arguing if you read it as progressive revelation... I think you'll come to the right conclusion. This is the first one here. First New Testament confirmation is found in the prophetic witness of the king's arrival. Look at Matthew 3, 3. It says, Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, making his path straight. Now, all of the synoptic gospels open up with the same message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, you use those interchangeably, is at hand, meaning it's dawned, meaning it's arrived. 
Malachi 4, 5 and 6 closes out the Old Testament. So there's Old Testament revelation that's closed out. There's a 400-year period of silence. And the first prophetic witness that shows up, this is what he's saying. Malachi 4 closes out the Old Testament with the promise that a prophet like Elijah will come and he will usher in the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's judgment. He's going to usher in judgment. And here he is in John's ministry. And so the first prophetic voice in 400 years comes, and what does it say? It says, repent, the kingdom of God, meaning God's reign, has arrived. Which would indicate the earthly kingdom is coming to Israel right now. And would also indicate a fiery judgment is coming upon the, the world. The judgment and then, and then the kingdom in that order. And John the Baptist and his ministry was to prepare for, for that coming and really give way to the king who is going to come and bring those two things about. I mean, that's Nobody argues about that. that. That's what was promised in the Old Testament. That's what John the Baptist's ministry does. John pointed to the one who would baptize with, with, with something else. Look at verses 11 and 12 of Matthew 3. John, he's preaching this message. The time has come for the, the kingdom and judgment. He says, as for me, I baptize you with, with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear the threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff and unquenchable fire. I mean, that's all day of the Lord, judgment language, kingdom language. The three types of baptisms mentioned here. John's baptism of repentance with water, which was to prepare them for the one who would do this, and then there's the two that Jesus will bring. There's the baptism with the Holy Spirit, which signifies regeneration and empowerment of believers. We'll come back to that whenever we get to Acts 1. And then there's a baptism of fire that Jesus is also bringing, which is represented, uh, represents the, the judgment, which is coming in the future. And you can see that clarified in verse, verse 12. His winnowing fork in his hand. I mean, that's all judgment language. So that's how God opens the New Testament. That's the New Testament prophetic voice. The promised king has arrived, and he will create kingdom subjects and empower them for their work, and, and he's going to judge those who reject his, his rule. It's the first, the first two you see the New Testament unfold or are taking place, but this earthly kingdom and final judgment hasn't happened yet. My point is, it's still expected. It's still expected here. Nothing's changed that. Nothing's changed anything from the, from, from the Old Testament with this opening prophetic voice. And then Jesus steps forward in the baptism as a substitute. And God accepts him and the Spirit anoints him for, for this work. He's here. He's going to create his subjects and empower them for the work, and, and he's also going to, to judge. All of this is condensed right here in this prophetic voice, and then it's stretched out as you, you see it unfold over the, over the New Testament. And the scene that follows is the temptation of Christ, baptism and then temptation, where Satan, like in the garden, offers Jesus another plan to build his kingdom. Well, look, if you would, at Matthew 4, 1. Matthew 4, 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You, you know this, this story. Fast for 40 days, 40 nights. Then he became hungry. And the tempter comes and says three things to him. The one that I want to show you about is about the kingdoms of the world. You would at verse 8. Matthew 4, 8. It says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. 
And then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil left him, uh, left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So Satan offers Jesus a shortcut, if you will. He says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Not spiritual kingdoms, but of the earth. And again, if you just try to put out of your mind whatever you think about the kingdom and work this through progressively, here's the first prophetic voice, and it does nothing but echo what, what's been said in the Old Testament. And here is Satan offering plan B, just like he did to Adam and Eve in the garden, which Jesus rejects and said, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. And think about that in, in, in light of what you've learned about the kingdom or reign of God and the original plan of filling the earth and expanding the garden. I mean, how could, how could Satan offer such a thing? Well, Satan's the current ruler of this world, according to John 12.31, because of the fall. He's a, he has a subordinated rule, a subjected rule, meaning he's not above God. He's not just running around doing whatever he wants. You can see that in the book of Job, just to get God's permission to do anything to believers. But after the fall, he is ruled, nonetheless. And that's what happened in the garden. Everything got turned upside down, and the creature ruled over the image bearers, and Satan offered Adam and Eve another plan to God's, and, and they took it. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 calls Satan the god of this world. 1 John 5, 19 says this entire world lies in the hands of the wicked one. That's, that's after 1 John revelation, 2 Corinthians revelation, is after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of Jesus. And so that doesn't sound like Satan is bound in any way. The entire world lies in the hands of the wicked one. And so here, Jesus does what Adam should have done in the, in the original temptation. As Adam followed Satan, Jesus didn't. He doesn't. And Adam decided, decided to fill the earth with his own glory, not God's. Jesus submits to the Father's plan, all of which ties back to the kingdom mandate that Jesus has now come to fulfill and will fulfill. He will be the faithful son, and he'll fulfill the reign of God over the, over the earth. And then after that, Jesus' ministry begins. So he steps forward in the baptism, successful in the temptation, and then his ministry begins. Look at verse 12 of chapter 4. John the Baptist goes off the scene. So now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Jesus goes to Galilee. He goes from the temptation to Galilee, and he begins preaching. Look at verse 17. From that time, John decreases, Jesus increases. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, he preaches the same thing that John's preaching. Except he's, he's the one who is the king and who brings this baptism by the Holy Spirit and will bring one by fire one day. He preaches about how to get in the kingdom, that it's still coming in the future, and that there's a future judgment that, that's coming. So Jesus starts where John leaves off, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, what does he mean by that? He means he's the promised one. He's come, and that God is about to fulfill what the prophets promised in the Old Testament. I mean, if you were a Jew and you were hearing that, that message, that, that's what you would think. And again, there's no indication here that, at the, up to this point at least, there's something coming in the future, but not at least at this point, that Jesus has changed anything about the future earthly kingdom in, in terms of not coming, or a future judgment, the day of the Lord, which is also tribulation. And look at exactly what Jesus is preaching. So there's the announcement of the king's arrival. Now there's the message. Matthew 5 through, through 7, Sermon on the Mount. You know that well. What is Jesus preaching? Is he just running around saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is that all he's saying? No. He's teaching in their synagogues. He's preaching all over the place. What's he saying? Well, here's what he's saying. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I mean, saying more than this, giving parables and others, but this is 
you think of the Sermon on the Mount as the primary message that Jesus is, is preaching. It's a representative sermon. Look at what he explicitly says in Matthew 5, 17. Again, we're looking to see, as Revelation unfolds here, is there anything up to this point where Jesus has changed the plan or given us some explicit revelation to tell us that, that he's altering things? You know the Beatitudes. That's the introduction to the sermon. And here is the proposition uh, of the message. Here's where Jesus transitions from his introduction what he wants to say. Do not think that I, in verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the, in the kingdom. And I think when you come to a passage like that, we, we just read this too much like Gentiles. With all this theology and stuff in our minds, and we're Gentiles, and we, and we come... I mean, think, these are Jews. Jesus is a Jew, the Jewish Messiah. And he's speaking to Jews in, in Galilee, and this is, this is what he said. He says, you know all that Old Testament stuff? All that Moses and the prophets foretold? Including those things about a future earthly kingdom? Where peace will reign and the land will be inhabited with, with Israelites? All that stuff? I'm not doing undoing one yod, hey, or vav of it. I'm not undoing any of it. But, but let me remind you of something else that's not new. The prophet said, what Moses said, that's not new. I'm not undoing any of it. This is something else that's not new, something that you do have messed up. Look at verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. I mean, the future kingdom is coming, but you're only getting into that kingdom by a righteousness that I provide, uh, one that comes by faith alone. That's what they had messed up. That's what the Jews of Jesus' day had upside down, not, not, the, not the nature of the kingdom. The timing of the kingdom hadn't been revealed to them, but, but the nature was still there. That They had messed up the way you entered. And of course, they didn't have the New Testament revelation about the, the timing, the gap, and all that being future. So the earthly kingdom is not now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time the king has come to make a way to reconcile the kingdom subjects, and even the sermon ends with that. Matthew 7, 21, by saying a future kingdom is coming. It's a passage that you know. It's probably, at least it did me, called me, caused me to shudder. Look at 7, 21. This is still part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is now... He goes through the law, you have heard, but I say unto you, it's not just external, it's internal. The practice of the law in chapter 6, don't practice your righteousness before others, don't pray outside, pray where only the Father can see. And now he comes to the invitation, drawing the, 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 the net, if you will, in 721. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Many will say on what day? On the day of the future kingdom. The kingdom comes. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, many will say to me on that day, meaning it's a future day. And then, in the future, I will declare to them, I never knew you, apart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And you could say, well, he's just talking about the eternal state there. Then show me a passage where Jesus undoes that up, up to this point. All the Old Testament revelations and earth, earth, earthly promises because I don't see any, at least up to this point. So if you're going to 
reinterpret that, then, then give me the revelation that, that gives me the ability to, to do that. And if there's that kind of shift, it, it surely would be there in spades. I mean, it would be, it would be black and white and, and very, very, very clear. And, and I surely don't buy that the kingdom of heaven is different from the kingdom of God because you have synoptic gospels where these are parallel passages and those things are, are interchangeable or are used interchangeably. Look at verse 26 at the very end of the sermon where Jesus gives the invitation. Verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall. What's he talking about? Talking about the day of judgment. When Jesus finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching as one having authority. Well, because he's the king. The rain and the floods, the great day of judgment, and he speaks with authority because he's the king. So representative of Jesus' preaching is I'm not undoing anything that the prophets and Moses foretold, including what I, I told Abraham about faith alone. Unless your righteousness comes just the same way that Abraham's did, you're not getting into the kingdom. There's a future kingdom that, that's coming. Those not in it will be judged. These things are exactly what Jesus makes plain to the disciples in Mark 13, which is a shorter version of Matthew 24. So I'm not going to try to tackle Matthew 24, but I don't think we have to. If you turn over to Mark 13, it's, it's a lot shorter, and it, it says the same, the same thing. I'm sure you got questions about... Matthew 24 and Mark 13, and we're going to answer some of those specific questions when we, we get to well, what about this passage and what about that passage after we walk through the whole thing progressively. Mark 13 is, is the shorter version of, of the exact same event, the Olivet Discourse. It's given to the Mount of Olives. given in the final week of the Lord's life. And it's recorded in all three Gospels, 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13. And it's prompted because the disciples are trying to figure out what, what's unfolding. They've got all this Old Testament promises and plans and timing, and Jesus is just messing all of that up. He's, he's, he's stretching out. The kings come. There's still going to be a future judgment. There's still going to be a, a future kingdom. But the king's not going to die. He's going to go to Jerusalem and die, rise, and be, and be, be resurrected. And you've already had the triumphal entry. And the disciples knew when knew God promised an earthly kingdom to Israel, and when, when the king appears in Jerusalem, things don't go as they expected. So they have some questions, rightly so. You recall when Jesus arrived on Sunday and was hailed as the Messiah with hosannas, instead of setting up his earthly kingdom and overthrowing the Romans, again, progressive revelation, he curses apostate Israel and overthrows the temple rulers. So here, okay, here it is. This must be the place where he, he changes stuff. He cursed the fig tree that represented Israel for represents Israel for no fruit. And he cleanses the temple and says it's a den of thieves. And then instead of taking his seat in the temple, he declares now the temple's going to be torn down and not one stone is going to be is going to be left from it. Sitting on top of each other. You can go to Israel today and still see the stones that were torn down in, in 70, 70 AD. Is that what he's talking about here? Just that? Yeah, I think this was a quite shocking moment for, for the disciples, the, the triumphal entry. And this is a very seemingly post-millennial statement, I, I might add, which is very shocking to the disciples who are clearly pre-millennialists. They were expecting a future earthly kingdom, ethnic, ethnic Israel being part of it, and so they asked the Lord two questions. Then tell us, when these things will be, and what will the, will the will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Those are the two questions. When will these things be? And what will the sign of all these things? When it's going to be fulfilled? When's the kingdom coming? 
the judgment and then you setting up the kingdom and, and what will be the sign of, of your return. Now the gap is here and Jesus tells the disciples the kingdom is coming. There's going to be a pause between the first and, and second coming. His answer here has three parts. What's going on in the present, which is in verses 3 through 13. You have to read these on your own for time's sake. The present while we're waiting between the comings, verses 3 through 13. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives and verse 4, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled. Jesus says, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name. This is the time between his comings. So what's happening while you're waiting on, on, on me to come? Then there's the future, outlining future tribulations in verses 14 through 23. Verse 14, but when you see, here's a dramatic change, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. There's, there's, there's something coming in the future, something that unless the days are shortened, no life would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, it's, it's shortened. And then there's the actual second coming, verses 24 through 37. Here's the third part of this message, verse 24. But in those days, after, the, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, the stars will be falling from the heavens, then they will see the Son of, the man, uh, Son of Man coming in clouds, great power and glory, and he will send forth the, the angels and gather his elect from the, from the four winds and from the corners of uh, heaven. Verses 3 through 13, the earth will continue as it has since the fall, catastrophes, uh, counterfeits, wars, persecutions. This will continue until this time of, of great tribulation. The Old Testament's called the, the, the day of the Lord. And remember, it was part of John the Baptist's message. The winnowing fork coming, the baptism of fire coming. It was also part of Jesus' message. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, on that day, and that's the time when God will pour out his wrath on the, on the unbelieving wor a world, and then when the future kingdom is coming. All of that will be triggered by the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in verse 14. Arguments about what that is. What's the abomination of desolation? And after those things are completed, then the king will come and the, the kingdom will come. We don't have time to look at all of it, but we're just going to look at verse 24 through, through 37 where Jesus answers the question about what will be the sign when all these things will be, will be fulfilled. He gives the the signs that trigger the tribulation period. But then he specifically tells them and us what to expect about his return, which anticipates a coming earthly reign. Not now, but in the future. And then he closes it all out about instructions to people who are, who are waiting on it. So up to this point, verse 24, where the counterfeits, don't be frightened by the hardships that are coming. Beware, there'll be opposition. Be busy witnessing. Because of all those things are going to happen between the first and the second coming. But then verse 24, but in those days after the, the, that tribulation, or the tribulation, when he starts with the sign of his appearing, there's an order of it. There's a forecast stuff going on in the background all around before he comes. And then there's a sight that's appearing here. He's already answered the wind question. He's corrected their chronology. It's not now. He told them of the great tribulation, just as Daniel foretold. Traumatic, terrifying, time as never before. Now he begins to answer about the signs of his return. He starts with the order of his return. He specifically says it's coming after the tribulation. Matthew says immediately after the tribulation. So in very close proximity of it. Back to Daniel, I mean, this is not just coming out of nowhere. It's, it's a fulfillment of, of Daniel. Daniel's mentioned here, Daniel's 70th week. Again, we don't have time to go to Daniel. Go back to listen to those messages. Now he specifically tells them 
that, that His return will come at the end of this. That's what's meant by in, in those days. In what days? In, in the days immediately following the tribulation period that, that He just described, or the tribulation that He just described. So the order is crystal clear. Tribulation first and then the second coming. But in those days after the tribulation, He says, a period foretold from the Old Testament is coming, the day of the Lord, and now he says he will come after that period. And you'll know it's, it's happening by this ominous forecast. Verse 24, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from the heavens, the powers that, that are in the heavens will be shaken, and all of this is language just borrowed from the Old Testament. The sun will be darkened, it's Joel 2 and 3, the stars falling... Verse 25 is Isaiah 34. The Son of Man coming is from Daniel 7. The Bible tells us the, the final days of tribulation will involve cataclysmic events. Again, progressive revelation, dragging the Old Testament along. Jesus is talking about these things. The book of Revelation hasn't come yet. The book of Revelation builds on this, gives more detail. And Jesus says, during the tribulation, the heavens that have been constant will be altered. The sun will be darkened. The moon will... Will, which gets its light from the sun, will go black as well, and the stars will be out of orbit, and they'll hurl to the earth, which makes perfect sense because the sun's mass makes it the dominant gravitational force in the solar system. Its gravitational pull is from its mass and the distance from the earth, for example. So when it goes dark, its, its mass is affected, and that throws everything in, in our solar system in chaos. Jesus says the stars fall out of the heavens, means the, the power that holds the heavenly bodies in their orbit will be altered, the writer said. And all of this is, is part of the day of the Lord that, that Isaiah predicted. Look at Isaiah, the, the prophet. Wail for the, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will, will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning fire to make the land desolate. He will exterminate sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be darkened, which rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and, and the wicked for, for their iniquity. As bad as 70 AD was, that doesn't sound like 70 AD to me. It was exactly what we saw detailed in Revelation. It's terrifying. It's so terrifying, God gives three breaks in Revelation to take it all in and give you a breather. Just as you wouldn't go to the beach with a tsunami bearing down, you wouldn't want to be on the earth during, during this period of time. But for those who are around will see the signs that the disciples asked for. Look at verse 26. Notice the time reference. Then they we'll see the Son of Man coming in clouds of glory with great power. Coming in clouds with, with power and great glory. And He'll send forth the angels and gather together His elect. When is then? When these final events of tribulation happen. Notice it says they. It doesn't say the disciples. He's speaking to the disciples, so He wouldn't say they. He would say you. He's talking about 70 AD. Another clear indication that this is not just describing the temple's destruction. These are people who are alive during the day of the Lord. Notice it It says that they will, will, will see the sign. Matthew 24 verse 30 says this, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and, and great glory. Matthew says it's, it's like a flash of lightning. It's instant. It's unexpected. It's universal. As lightning flashes from the east to the west, he'll return visibly and all will see. And the, and the Son himself is the sign. There won't be a secret coming or a sneak in. Listen, I can tell you beyond any shadow of a doubt, Jesus Christ has not come yet. He didn't come in 70 A.D., he didn't come to American Indians. How do I know? Because the sign of his coming will be the second coming itself. All will see him. Not a select few. 
Revelation 1, 7 says, Behold, He is coming with clouds and every eye will see Him. And when He comes, He'll separate His followers from the kingdom. Verse 26. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds and the angels are then dispersed. The disciples are asked, What's the sign of your coming? Jesus says it's a fulfillment of Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And what they'll see is not the blessed return of the Savior, but seated judge and sentencing. That's what the world will see. That's why Matthew says, his passage says that they'll mourn when they sin. Then it says he'll send forth. Then he'll send forth. Another time reference. No separation will take place until he comes. Just like Jesus said, leave the tares in the field. Verse 27, then he'll send forth his angels and will gather together his chosen one, his elect, from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. There's some in earth and there's some in the heaven. Some in heaven. One's gathered here to enter the kingdom. Daniel says would have no end. All of God's people will be gathered wherever they're at, alive on the earth or whether they're in heaven. Four winds is just an expression of everywhere. Grandfather used to use that. He said his children were scattered to the four winds. I mean, they're everywhere. Not a single believer will miss the kingdom. And it will include those on the earth and those already in heaven. The gathering of God's people implies that there will be a group that they're gathered out of. It's a future event. And the generation that sees these signs, those who are alive during the tribulation period, period won't end before, before Jesus comes. Whatever you do, though, don't, don't explain away this prophecy. Look at verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away. Is that familiar language? He said about the law and the prophets. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Of that day, no one knows, not even the angels, not Son, the Father alone. Well, what day or hour? The coming of the Son of Man. What angels? The ones will be called together, believers for the for the kingdom. And again, think about this progressively. Try to put out of your mind what what else. And I know we didn't cover the you know the, the parables and those kinds of things. We'll do that. I'm just trying to lay out. If you just look at the message of Jesus and you're you're dragging the context of the Old Testament, what was expected? Does he change anything? Is there any explicit change in the Old Testament promises? Explicit. It says nothing about Israel's absence, nothing about the kingdom happening now. It's, this says nothing about no future kingdom. It points to exactly what the Old Testament promised. A future kingdom where Messiah is, is coming to judge and, and coming to, to reign. And the next time we'll, we'll see that unfold even further in, in the book of Acts. We'll go to the Great Commission, which Jesus commissions the apostles to take over and what their message is. And we'll look at, at Acts chapter 1, where Jesus literally hands off the ball, and it says he, he spends about five weeks with them, teaching them about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And their only question, about five weeks, was about five weeks about the kingdom, kingdom of God, everything around their task. Their only question is: Is now the time? Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Coming now? They're still expecting an earthly, future kingdom that Israel part of, even after they get the commission. And then after that, we'll, we'll look at the epistles and say, well, maybe, maybe the, after the apostles got the ball, there was future revelation that came to the apostles. Did they get anything new? And we'll, we'll look at that. We'll look at Romans 9 through 11 and some other passages there, and then Clay will bring us home with Revelation 20. Years ago, John MacArthur was very helpful trying to force me to go through this process, the same process. 
where I got it from. Let's walk through in progressive revelation and look and see well, what's being said. Not the sermon tonight, but just this idea of progressive revelation. I'm trying to force myself to ask these questions and not import any, any outside ideas. And hopefully, when you get to the end, you'll, you'll be convinced and see it if you're not already. And if you are, you'll, you'll be encouraged and strengthened. So, let me pray. And then I'm going to go eat some pizza. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of it. Thank you for the questions that it brings up. Thank you that we, we can look to it. Even if all of our questions aren't answered, that's our authority. Every person in this building tonight believes that. I'm so thankful of that. I'm so thankful, Lord, for, for a good church full of people that love your word and just want to try to understand it. Would you help us to do that? Help us to be good teachers, make things plain and clear, and learn even ourselves. Love you. Dismiss us now with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.